When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast, which this week is a recording of our live show, the MK3D show that I do every month at the BFI South Bank. It was a packed show for January. Our guests included Jack Howard, regular here on the Kermode on Film podcast, Alfred George Bailey, director of Show Me the Picture, the Jim Marshall story, Kristen Scott Thomas talking about her forthcoming film Military Wives, and Amanda Yanucci on the brilliant David Copperfield. So sit back, relax, enjoy a front row seat to MK3D live from the BFI South Bank. Let's begin by saying, ladies and gentlemen, I can't believe I'm saying this, welcome to MK3D, Kristen Scott Thomas! <laughs> a new film coming out we're going to begin by showing the trailer for the film i want to begin by saying that in this trailer it says academy award nominee kristen scott thomas i was kind of hurt that it didn't say kermode award winner <laughs> which i think is slightly more prestigious well, so it's also it's the only thing i actually do have in the loo <laughs> have you have you still got yes it? yes really yes oh i'm so pleased <laughs> oh that's fine and it is in the bathroom yes Excellent. Right, let's look, let's look at the trailer there while I just bask in the glow of that. All right, this is the trailer for the new film. I just feel sick every time the phone rings, every time the doorbell goes. How do you cope? You may not need the choir, Lisa, but those women do. Lying in my bed, I hear the clock tick and think of you. If you're lost, you can look and you will find me. Top Brass need you to sing at the Festival of Remembrance. It's on TV. The big one. We need to be organised. Something we both know is not your strong point. Do you know what? All you do is belittle me, but I am trying. This is going to be a disaster. Guys, please don't give up. I know we can do this. Great music, it doesn't happen when things are perfect. It happens when you care. This choir isn't about singing for ourselves. It's about them being heard. 
Behold our choir, dignified, noble, full class. I should say that just when we were in the green room and I said, oh, I really enjoyed it, I really liked the film. And you said, oh, what do you think? I said, well, you know, I cried four times. You went, oh, I thought we'd made a comedy. And <laughs> I mean, there's, you know, there are, ex- describe the film for us in the how, you know, what's the backstory of it? Because it says inspired by the, you know, by the true life story, so. Well, what happened is that um, the wives of people who'd gone off to Afghanistan um, created a choir to keep their sort of morale up and... Um, this was documented, but, and um, I think Gareth Malone was mm-hmm. the, the um, choir master, I think the word is. And um, they were incredibly successful and really caught the, um, the attention of the general public. And so we've taken that, um, that thing and um, sort of invented a story around it. Um, basically, my character, Kate, is the colonel's wife and um, she's very bossy and nothing at all to do with me. <laughs> Are you bossy? Um. <laughs> I don't know, I never thought you were, but you, since you said nothing to do with me in an ironic way, sort of implying yeah. that you... Uh, yeah, well, I have, been, uh, I have been accused of that sometimes, yes. Nonsense, of course. Okay, fine. fine. <laughs> so, your character Kate is... The character Kate is... Um, and she's, she, she fancies herself as a bit of a singer... And then, um, well, everybody just sort of, it becomes a, a great sort of uniting thing where um, it does everyone an awful lot of good. Not, but singing does, because it's not only a sort of physical thing, because you have to be in a certain sort of physical thing to, um, to be able to produce a sound. Um, but also, the, it was very bonding for, even us shooting it, actually, we started off quite sort of chilly with each other, and then by the end we were sort of cook-ups and things. It was really, actually, great fun. Are you a natural singer anyway? I'm a naturally bad singer, yeah. <laughs> Do you sing, like, in the bath or when you're running or...? Uh, yes, but, yeah, it's dangerous. OK. <laughs> and during the course of doing the film, did you become a better singer through...? I did, actually, yes. I'm so glad you asked me that. Um, I did become a better singer. And are you, would you now consider yourself to be a... No, 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 I'm still no, okay, terrible. Fine, fine. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's quite frightening. But, but um, it, it was just the joy of doing something together, you know, with a lot of other people. It's really great making a big noise with a lot of other people. Why do people like cheering? Why do people like... You know, we, we love making that sort of... Sort of all having the same encouragement or in unison is really exciting. That thing about me saying that I, that I cried... Instantly, me saying I, I cried is a good thing because I think any movie that's able to make you cry is doing something which is what cinema is about and at the end of that there's a quote from James King or as I like to refer to him mini me and it says feel good film of the year but it, it is a combination of the funny and the poignant and there are very sad moments. yeah there are moments that are really quite sort of harrowing um, but the, the, what what's so clever about it is the way it uh, and I think this is a, that's a very it's a very British film in that in that sense mm-hmm. is that it manages to get that peculiar balance of um, almost slapstick at times, um, and 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 tragedy, um, and we f- find the amusing in the tragedy, and the tragedy in the amusing, um, and that I think that works very well in this film. Am I right in thinking that you come from a military background? Yeah, yeah. My my father was in the in the in the Royal Navy. Yeah. And did that help at all with 
the role? It did, because I, I spent a little part of my childhood on a patch, on a um, big base, you know, the housing estates that they have on, on the bases. So I knew what that was like in going to the NAFI and um, you know, doing things sort of military. I think a lot of people in the, my profession are from um, military families. A lot of people, a lot of children, when they get moved around all the time, they have to sort of adapt the whole time and, mm. and um, fit in. And that's what we do for a living. <laughs> Can I show a clip which has got one of the gags that's in the trailer again, but it's a good gag and it is worth seeing twice and it's a nice clip, so it's only like three seconds that we see again. Do you mind, you don't, you, you don't object to no, the repetition? it's fine. Okay, thank you, <laughs> thank you. I don't know what I would have done if you said it wasn't fine, because I was gonna play anyway. <laughs> so, okay. so, why don't we, sorry. <laughs> go ahead. No, 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 no go ahead. Okay. Um, uh, thanks very much, Lisa. That's lovely. Um, so today's practice is going to focus on something called count singing. Now, don't panic. It's a very easy exercise to help us with pitch and rhythm without having to learn lyrics. Why don't we just sing a song? Just because this is just how I learned it at school. So, one, one, two, one, one, two, three, two, one, one, two, three, four, three, two, one. See, it's very easy. All together now. One, one, two, one, one, two, three, four, three, two, one, one, two, three, four, five, so, sorry, no, there's no five, no five. Was that, is that gag about her saying five and then saying there's no five, is that scripted or is that, because it looks ad-libbed. Um, I think it was sort of semi-scripted, but it kind of grew. When, when you're doing comedy, because I mean, obviously, you know, you have experience in both, you know, comedy and very, is it funny whilst you're making it? Because I mean, I know that people say that when you make comedy, it's actually harder because you have to be more disciplined because the third time a joke isn't funny. Yeah, that, that, is, that is quite tricky. But I don't do very many jokes. They don't, they're not, they're usually not written as jokes. They sort of happen sometimes. You know, it, it doesn't really work, but um, sometimes it, it, it just, I don't know, it just happens by accident. Um, uh, when we, except for the things that I think are funny, often end up being the opposite. Um, but the, when we did The Party, for example, which was hilarious to read, um, that was the nearest I've ever got, I think, to doing something like that. But and it's true, it was very difficult to keep the, keep, in that film particularly, to keep the, the sort of the tension of you know, what was really at stake and, and not turn it into some sort of raucous rollabout thing. I did a TV series which uh, Nick directed called Secrets of Cinema, in which we were looking at different genres, and one of them was rom-coms. And we did a section about four weddings, and I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of Richard Curtis. And uh, the series was written by me and Nick and Kim Newman and, uh, and, and John Daston. One of the things that we all agreed on is that the one problem with four weddings and a funeral is that because of the strength of the scenes that you have, that in the end, he marries the wrong person. Everyone goes, why does he marry you? Because clearly, that's who he's actually in love with because those scenes because that thing works they were, because they were good weren't they they were good scenes those um yeah i don't know <laughs> <laughs> silly boy <laughs> do you go back and watch it at all i have watched it occasionally it's sort of it's quite difficult not to really because it seems to be on every plane every flight um but there again you know in that film i was the sort of tragic element i'm often the tragic element in <laughs> When I gave you the Kermode Award for leaving, and, and you, you said something then, I, I've heard you say it since, that, that there was a point when you seemed to be playing characters who were sort of slightly cracked. 
And I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, like in leaving, she's slightly cracked. And isn't that just, that's just an interesting character. All interesting characters are slightly cracked. Yes, I think you're right. Um, but uh, often, um, yeah, I, I mean, I think it was my, my lot was to find these people who were, who were very kind of strong and, and um, forceful. And, and I, I hadn't really got the, I hadn't really got the cracked ones, but then I got a whole lot of them, and now I'm back to being healthy. <laughs> I also remember I, I asked you this thing, and I've, so I've been telling this story for ages. I did check with you that this is true. Hmm. I said to you, "Do you live in?" Because you were living in France then, but not uh, not so much now, but apparently. But and I said, "Because I've just got this vision of you in France, leading this kind of bohemian lifestyle." And, I, and you said, "What do you mean?" I said, "Well, like I can imagine you, you know, going to a chic uh, cafe to have coffee with Juliette Binoche and Isabelle Huppert." And you said, "Why do you say those two? I said, "Well, that's just how I imagine you." You said, "It's funny because that's exactly what I was doing yesterday." <laughs> Yeah, it is quite it is quite quite funny. If in, in there's a certain market in Paris on a Sunday morning, and if you go there, you're bound to see you know a star every five minutes, you know, proper actresses buying proper real real vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> and do, um, are you all friendly? Or do you swap? Do you, do you talk about acting when you're not doing the job? Oh no. No, I'm fine. <laughs> no, it's all. I think it's actually better not to talk about acting, but. Um, uh, well, you know, sort of. Actually, I know Isabel through school, so we usually talk about our children. <laughs> sorry. No, no, that's fine. I mean, I sorry. When you said through school, I thought you went to school with Isabel. No, no, no. I, children, children, I, children, I, children, I thought children. you were born in Cornwall. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You were born in. I Cornwall. was born in Cornwall. Yeah. yeah, it's fine. So you are natively Cornish. I'm natively Cornish, which seems to be good news. That, yes, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. You know, you and Bate yeah. are in the same. Yeah, that's great. Um, have you seen Bate? No. Most brilliant Cornish film for the last. Well, ever, actually, because it's a very sort of small, uh, small field. And uh, I asked you to choose a guilty pleasure, and you chose a film which I have, to, I have to say I don't think is very guilty at all, but I love the fact that you chose it because I love it. Kristen, what was your guilty pleasure choice? Alien. <laughs> see? I'm obviously not the only one. So, when did you first see Alien? I saw Alien when it came out. I saw it on the King's Road, and then I had to walk home... <laughs> uh, absolutely terrifying um, and I think it, I couldn't bring myself to go to the cinema again for a very long time because I really did find it genuinely scary um, and I couldn't quite figure out why it was so scary but now looking at it as a much older person um, with a little more experience of life I understand all the sort of the undercurrents are so it's all so dark and sort of sexual and um, yeah. So that's a bit guilty. And uh, when, did, when did you go and see it because you thought it was a horror film, or did you go and see it because you'd read reviews? What was the thing that made you go? I don't know. Some bloke took me. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you knew nothing about it beforehand. Um, no, I don't. I don't know. It's such a long time ago. I don't think I did. No, I had. I knew. I think I knew it was scary, and so everybody was getting quite excited about it, and you had to be braced to go and watch it. But I. I I didn't realise how sort of disturbing it was going to be for a young girl. But I, I remember seeing it the day it opened in the Gaumont North Finchley. Uh, I went to the 2.30 performance. I can remember exactly where I sat in the balcony. I knew nothing at all except for the poster said it was a cross between 2001 and The Exorcist, which sounded bang on for me. <laughs> and I didn't know about the chestburster scene. And when the chestburster scene happened, I actually thought I was going to lose control of my bodily functions. I have never been so... Genuine, and now people forget just how uh, shocking that was. So, so, so shocking, and done with completely um, 
yeah, mechanical means, you know, not CGI and things like that, I don't think. Um, anyway, so that was very, very impressive. But the, the, the scene when the thing comes up by her leg and sort of snakes up and, oh. <laughs> We're going to show a clip. We're going to show a clip from the end of the... I'm assuming you've all seen Alien, right? Okay. I don't think this any longer constitutes a spoiler. <laughs> you could have figured out from Aliens and Alien 3, Sigourney Weaver lives, okay? The alien doesn't. So, here we go. Here's a clip. off Ian Holmes' head. Yes. And then they really love the destroying, but when all the... I mean, they really go for the blowing up stuff. They yeah. really go for it. You can see they must have had such fun making it. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I love about that scene is she's singing You Are My Lucky Star from Singing in the Rain. And I love the fact that that's how she's trying to calm herself down. Also, because famously that, that lead role was written uh, as, a, as a male role. And then it was only quite late on in the production that it became Sigourney Weaver. And it and Ripley is now such an iconic yeah. thing. It's like, you know, there's, a, there's been a whole raft of science fiction heroines that would never have happened mm. if Sigourney Weaver hadn't happened. Do you remember watching it in the, in the cinema and feeling empowered by that? Did it strike you? Um, no, I don't, I don't think I was sort of aware of any problems in that department then. I didn't really think, you know, she was just a really cool woman and you sort of wanted to be as brave and as beautiful as she was. Um, yeah. There's a story about when they were shooting the, the chest burster scene. Um, I used to know John Hurt quite well, and, and, uh, and I did, made a documentary with Nick about Alien. And there was a story that they didn't know, the, act, the other actors didn't know how bad the, the chest burster was going to be. And Sigourney Weaver says, well, we had an idea because we went off for lunch and we came back in and the entire camera crew were wearing Macs. <laughs> Do you go back and watch Alien again, or is it just something that you saw once and have loved since? No, I've watched... I, when I first watched it, and I told you I was terrified, didn't want to see another horror film or anything like that for years and years and years. And then I came across it about, oh, about ten years ago um, and thought, oh, I'll watch that. And I absolutely loved it. And I saw... Because now, of course, I work in that business, so I, you can see how things are done and how things are made. And, and, the, and the sound is so brilliant. The sound is fantastic with that constant sort of heartbeaty sound um, and the and the, the sets are br brilliant and um, I just the, the women look fabulous and everything just is is just it's just a really great film I you love worked it. with Ridley Scott forgive my ignorance no no have you, you you must have met him I presume yes yeah and did you do because when I first met him I just did the fanboy thing but tell me I did that tell me I did that no, I, 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 yes, I wish I had, I put it this way, I was one of my great regrets. Enough said. <laughs> Listen, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank the, you, the, the new film opens on March the 6th. Do you want to just say, in, in like a sentence or two, if people are going to go along, what should they expect from Military Wives? Oh, you'll have, um, well, 
you'll be in tears and you will be laughing and you will come away with this fantastic sense of sort of not sisterhood but brotherhood of camaraderie and um, of wanting to go and hug your friends I promise you (laughs) <laughs> and have you been singing Cindy Lauper ever since? <laughs> See, I love that song. I know, it's a great song. It is a great song. It's one of my favourites. I know, there's some really good songs I bought two copies of it on 45 in case one of them wore out. <laughs> Seriously. No, no, I can imagine. It's a really great song. And the end song that was specially written yeah. um, is just, well, you'll see. Thank you so much for coming to the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Chris Scott Thomas, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'm going to show you a trailer for a documentary that opens this Friday that I've seen and really, really like. Uh, This is a trailer. Well, it'll explain itself. Here we go. Fuck all the words, man. Look at my work. Look at my track record over 20 years of taking pictures. Look at my body of work. Think it works? Jim Marshall. Who's Jim Marshall? Where do you start? Jim was the man. Jim was nuts. He was like a rock star. My father had an abrasive exterior, but had a great big warm heart underneath it. Jim Marshall was exactly the same way. You did not want to be on the wrong side of Jim Marshall. I always like cars, guns, and cameras. Cars and guns have got me in trouble. Cameras haven't. <laughs> it's a great documentary. It's directed by Alfred George Bailey, who is meant to be on stage at the Albert Hall, but he can't be yet because he's here. Alfred George Bailey. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not lying, am I? You are meant to be at the Albert Hall. Yes. What's happening at the Albert Hall? Not a lot. No, no. <laughs> what um, will be happening when you turn up and rock the joint? Well, we're going to be screening this in a, in a private screening of the documentary. And then tomorrow is a public screening of the documentary before its release on Friday. Do you want to tell us how you ended up directing this extraordinary story, which is absolutely full of the most astonishing archive photos. And I have to confess, Alfred, photos that I didn't realize some of them were taken by Jim Marshall. So they just, they, because they're so iconic, you never even stop to think, I wonder who took that. Right, so I'll condense this story because I've got to go to the Albert Hall. Um, <laughs> they can wait. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's just the Albert Hall. Yeah. Um, basically, I was invited to an exhibition because I'm a photographer as well, as well as being a filmmaker and it was for jazz festivals a book by Jim Marshall and Amelia and Benita were taking the book around launching this book about Jim's work and I was invited so I went and I always remember going up the stairs where Leica used to be in Mayfair and where they have their gallery it's in an attic a really beautiful attic and I got to the top of the stairs and I was faced with this picture of Miles Davis and I only knew Jim for his rock photography and I knew that's what he did, and I knew he was amazing, and he was a, you know, he was actually more of a documentary photographer in music, and 
So I looked, and then there was Miles Davis, there was Cannonball Adderley, there was Felonius Monk. It just went on and on and on. And I thought, this is incredible. So they saw me with my face pressed up against the glass, looking at how it was all printed, and the, the blacks were so dark, and the, and the greys were so beautiful, and just the, the composition. And then I got introduced to Amelia Davis, who is the owner of Jim Marshall LLC, and she kept his uh, story alive. Because when Jim died, he left everything to his assistant. He didn't really have, he didn't have any children. And also Jim didn't, um, family was a funny thing for Jim. But anyway, at that meeting I met Amina, we got on like a house on fire. We exchanged details and Jason Heward, the head of Leica UK said, you should see Alfred's first film. Which is? The Gregory Porter, which was shown here on this very stage. So this is really strange <laughs> to be here again, looking at you wonderful people. And um, it, we, we, Amelia promised me that she would um, look at the film and be in touch within a couple of weeks. And to her word, within a couple of weeks, she sent me an email and said, can we talk? I've just seen your film. I remember this really lovely email. And uh, we spoke and she said, we've been trying to get this documentary together. I don't know if you're interested, which is one of the funniest lines ever. <laughs> and uh, I was like, you asking me to? And she was like, yeah, I think it'd be really great. And then for the first two months of the documentary, I spent my whole time asking her, are you sure you want me to make the documentary on Jim Marshall? And uh, she said, it's too late, you're already in. <laughs> and then we went out there, we did a recce, and uh, Tatiana Kennedy, the producer, and wasn't intending on filming, and then ended up doing four of the major interviews in this film. And then it snowballed. One of the things that you did, which I thought was really interesting, was in order to give the film the feel of looking at it through its subject's eyes, you used the lenses that Jim Marshall had used. Is that right? That's right. Good memory, Mark. <laughs> I'm not that old. <laughs> Jeff. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I have, sometimes you have great ideas, and some of my great ideas come when I'm sitting on the toilet very early in the morning. <laughs> so, I'm sitting on the loo, and I, all of a sudden, I thought... Picture it. Picture it. <laughs> it's a wonderful sight, seeing me in my boxers in the morning. <laughs> Anyway, uh, <laughs> moving on swiftly. <laughs> I was there and it was really, really early and I looked at the time and I thought, I wonder if Amelia's still up. So when I was with Leica, I get to use lots of different lenses and we were gonna get all these big cinema lenses and it was all gonna be very large and, you know, intrusive. And I thought, do you know what? And I emailed, a text Amelia said, are you up? She goes, yeah, can you talk? She said, yeah. So we spoke and I said, what do you think about using Jim's lenses from the 60s to film. She was like, oh my God, that's a great idea. And then she sent me these boxes of Jim's lenses, which we know were used in Woodstock, Altamont, uh, Monterey Pop, Monterey Jazz. Um, and um, They were all kept in a safe, right? He kept all that stuff in a great big safe. So, Jim had this huge safe where he kept his cameras, cash, guns, um, and other bits and pieces Food. of food. <laughs> Rolls of film, possibly. But no, but Jim kept a lot of his camera bodies in there and his lenses, but these ones definitely were used at Woodstock and at Altamont and these places, because some of the photos with Jim has the lenses or cameras around his neck, one of the 50 millimeter 1.2s I used to film some of the main interviews, all the modern stuff that was filmed, 
was one of those lenses. So it was like, you know, like Raiders of the Lost Ark, you open it, it's beautiful. You know, <laughs> the light or your shine, skin falls off. my skin yeah, falls off right. because it's too gorgeous. <laughs> and I just, a pile of goo on the floor. But, <laughs> but it was really wonderful to hold them. And it re I really was nervous knowing that these lenses were shot some of the most iconic pictures that we know, you know. You and I did a Q&A down in Cornwall um, a couple of weeks ago to show the film, and there was some people that had been involved in it, but it was also in a public audience. Mm -hmm. And we did it, we had questions at the end, and one of the questions that came up quite a lot was, was he really like that? Because one of the things that the film doesn't do is shy away from showing him, you know, it's, a, it's an appreciative of his art, yeah. but there is no question that he was a difficult man, is there? Mark, I don't really believe you can do what he did and be vanilla in any way. And also, I think Jim did have an incredible heart. He had a big heart. But also, he was plagued with demons and stuff that he wrestled with. And I think in the documentary, we talk about his father, the relationship he had, as you know. Yeah. It wasn't easy. And he left San Francisco with his parents when he was two, moved to, I mean, Chicago, moved to San Francisco. But his father didn't stay around for a long point in his life. And he was abusive and he was a drunk, his father. But he was an intelligent man, but he never actually made anything of himself other than what he was doing. And he had to paint houses. So you can imagine the burden of that. Mm -hmm. But Jim had a very forceful nature, and I think without, if his father was, I did a Q&A in the States, and, the, and I said, if Jim's father was a nice man, none of us would be here. If he said, son, let's go and be, let's go in the garage and do some mechanics and do this, or woodworking, he wouldn't have done that. He would have done something. I think he would have been a race car driver, because he, he loved, the thing with Jim is he loved the mechanics of the camera, and he understood that better than most. So he understood how the camera worked. Mm. And a lot of photographers like photography, like taking pictures, but don't understand the equipment they're using. And it takes them a while to get used to it. Jim knew it from day one. So when he raised the camera and shot, he was already, he'd already computed that in a millisecond what he was gonna do. He already knew what to do without looking. So that's, that's an incredible gift. And very few have it. One of the things I think is, I mean, I really like the film. And one of the things I like about it is, I think it's, it's made with a certain music. And you said, oh, well, you know, I was a drummer. But you said it in a kind of offhand way. And I went, oh, yeah, really? You know, because I'm a bassist. And I, well, I care. And I said, really? Who do you drum for? And you went, oh, Courtney Pine. <laughs> yeah, well. So you. <laughs> it's like the time I, I, here in the BFI once, I was talking to Vicky Russell, Ken Russell's daughter. She was some bloke with, it, with her. I don't know. He's asked me about music. I told him, yeah, I'm a bassist. And I do this. And I built a guitar. I told him about 10 minutes about my fabulous career. And then I went, do you play anything? And Ken Russell went, have you met Brian Adams? <laughs> it's a true story. I am not making that up. But do you think that being a musician f feeds into your filmmaking? Every film I've done to date, um, or anything I've done in that world has, I think music is another character in the film. Mm. And if you notice that we're talking about Alien, without that musical score, I think it wouldn't have had the same menace. Jaws, never have the same menace. Exorcist, da-da-da. Close Encounters, it goes on and on. Godfather, as you know, I love that yeah, film. Yeah. That's your favorite film, right? Godfather. One and two. Yeah. <laughs> Not three. <laughs> One and two, I love. Yeah. 
but yeah, going back to Jim and his 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 personality, I think. I think you need to, he he was able also to be a chameleon. If he was with the jazz musicians, they embraced him. If he was with the um, the Hell's Angels, hanging out, doing whatever, he was one of them. If he was with the folk people, the the the, the actual um, organizers who were very, you know, he blended it and he really knew how to be the uh, almost like a, a Zelig-like figure. Yeah. Where if he was standing with these people, he'd become those people. But they, he didn't do it as a fake thing. He he really garnered the trust of everybody. He he um, he you know who, who he took the pictures of. He loved his subjects, and you could see that in his photos. And he actually cared about them. And he actually had a sensitivity. And he also had a thing where he could actually see the the failings in others, the nervousness, the the anxiety just before you go on stage. Can I really do this? And he can capture that. And they allowed him to do that. And that's very rare. It's almost impossible now. There's a comment in the documentary, it may even have been in the trailer, in which somebody says you don't get that close to your subjects unless they trust you. Yeah. And he did win the trust of all his subjects, which is why he got those very close-up intimate photographs, yes? Yeah. I think without that, I think the stuff he did with Joplin, as you saw in the film, and, and Hendrix, mm. and he knew everybody at the beginning. He was very fortunate to be at the beginning, Dylan's career, Joplin, Creedence Clearwater, Grateful Dead, it goes on and on and on. All these people, Miles Davis, it was quite early on in his career, um, shot Diana Washington, one of the first shots he did. His career started with the jazz world, in a way. He started to hone some of the most amazing pictures and then shooting around the Haight-Ashbury. Those shots are, wow, they make my hair stand on them. To know that he could master the camera like that and master his craft, like at a very early part of his career. Have you seen um, the, the responses to the film? Because obviously you saw it when it played at South by Southwest and it, and it, it took the roof off, right? Everybody yeah. loved it. And then in San Francisco, it won Best um, Doc Audience Award as well, Doc Feature. So has that, been, that must have been a real relief after having sort of worked so passionately on a project to see it go down that well. I'll tell you what, Mark, the hardest, thing, the hardest screening, apart from the one that you were at, was, <laughs> was San Francisco because all of his old cronies came. And there were some people there who were like, yeah, hi, how are you? And you know, you see these guys who knew Jim well, and you knew you had a responsibility. And if it failed there, you know that was it. It wasn't really going to work. And I think one of the best compliments I've ever had about the film was a guy came to me and he looked really teary and he says, hey man, you brought Jim back. That was Jim. And he goes, he didn't hide anything. And Jim was a complicated man, going back to what you're yeah. saying. He was difficult. I think he was loving, kind, difficult, abrasive. He's kicking the doors. He was, if he was your friend, he'd be incredibly protective. But if he's your enemy, you'd need protection. <laughs> so, you know, he was that kind of guy, as you know. He did like a firearm or two. He did. Although what's interesting... Or 10. Is, there, there, there is a nuance to that, which is that... I'm not saying he didn't like guns, but one of the things he liked about them was the mechanics. In the same way as the mechanics of the camera, he liked things that you could take apart yeah. and that had, you know, spinning parts. It was... I know it was guns as well, but he yeah. was interested in the mechanics of them, right? And that's the thing. He, it, this is what I was trying to explain there. It wasn't, oh, he just liked guns for the sake of it. He actually liked the artistry of it. He liked knives. He just loved the, how things are made. He loved cars and engines. He was a real petrol head. So that's why he, he understood. He looked at the camera. He understood it straight away. Like there's some people who can get in a car and, yeah, I get it. Gears, this, pedals, yep. And other people take some you know, driving lesson number 25 before they pass. 
Now, I know you have to be at the Albert Hall. I'm going to ask you to do one last thing. Just pass me that box there, that black box there. So when we were at... Yeah, you know what it is. So when we were, <laughs> so when we, when we were, when we were at this thing in Cornwall together... So... Um, very short story. So I knew David Holmes, and I, I'm a real spectacle fetishist, as I believe you I are. Am, yeah. And I was with David Holmes, and I said, man, I love those frames. I didn't say man. I never say man. I said, <laughs> why I said that? I'm turning myself into a cooler person than I am. I said, I love those frames you're wearing. He said, oh, they're very cheap. And uh, anyway, sometime later, he sent me a pair of the cheap frames. And my neighbor in Cornwall is an optician. And I got them made up into what I believe to be the coolest pair of glasses anyone has ever I seen in their are. life. And this was the best thing was, it's the first time I'd ever worn these, right? And when we first met, you went, wow, those glasses are great. So as a result of them, I believe that you are now working with my optician. But just tell me this, are, is this not the coolest pair of glasses you have ever seen? <laughs> Come on. I'm not gonna be so cool. Just remember, when you see a famous filmmaker walking around wearing those glasses, it was my <laughs> idea, okay? So the film opens on Friday. People yes. can see it's Picture House. Yeah. And, and also they can come tomorrow at the Albert Hall if there are tickets left yeah. um, to see it. And Jim's photos will be exhibited there. And from... It'll be on release in cinemas from the 31st of January. Fantastic. Alfred George Bailey, everybody. Thank you very much. Run to the Albert Hall. Thank you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is actually the first point in the show that I'm looking at my notes, because the thing that I knew was, okay, we have to get through all that stuff first where everybody has to dash off. So, okay, a couple of uh, points about things that have happened since we were last together, as you probably saw, uh, tragically, uh, Kobe Bryant died. I have to say, I know nothing about sport at all. The only reason that I knew the name was because he, of course, won an Oscar for this animated short, uh, which is called Dear Basketball, which I think you can probably see online. Some of you will have seen it. It, it wasn't immediately mentioned in, in all of the immediate tributes, but that was uh, how I knew him. Also, uh, as you'll know, since the last time we met, we lost Terry Jones. 
we are going to play a Terry Jones tribute at the very, very end of the show. So stay for that because that's, that's a nice little thing. Also, I want to show you this. This is a campaign which has just been launched, which I'm very proud to be part of, which is a campaign to save Derek Jarman's cottage as an ongoing artist space. There is a promotional film and it's a fundraiser. I'm just gonna show you the last sort of like 50 seconds of it. It's a really worthy uh, cause. If you're interested, just go online. You can find the rest of the video. This is just a little glimpse of it. Artists will come, activists, writers, gardeners. They will come and use the house as a residency space to inspire their work so that the public can enjoy the legacy of Derek Jarman's time in the cottage. The idea that decades after he died, artists could still come to his house and get some spark into their, into their own work is absolutely central to him. It, it feels like the most appropriate sort of memorial to him. This will only happen if we're able to rally as many people as possible to join us. We need your support. Please help us to secure the creative future of this truly remarkable place. Visit artfund.org prospect to donate. As a thank you for your donation, you can choose from a number of unique rewards. These have been created by a range of brilliant artists and supporters of the campaign. Thank you. So that's the campaign to save Prospect Cottage. As I said, there's a hashtag which you saw, and uh, if you're interested at all, please go, go online and have a look, because it's a wonderful place, and it is... They want to keep it as a kind of refuge for artists and writers. And I think it's, Derek Jarman is really important and it's really necessary to preserve that memory and keep that creative tradition thriving. Now, over the weekend, I had the great privilege of being in Rotterdam. Am I saying that? Rotterdam. 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 And, and, I, and I flew out from Schiphol Airport. Schiphol Airport and then Rotterdam. And uh, stop applauding my accent. I mean, I appreciate the effort. They, are you Dutch? Okay, properly in Dutch, how would I say that? Schiphol. Yeah, and Rotterdam? Rotterdam. Okay. Oh, do me a favour. Do you know... Do you know the Dutch happy birthday? I'm, I'm serious. Do you know how to sing happy birthday in Dutch? Yeah, come with me. Come with me. Very quickly, very quickly. <laughs> Come on, come on, come on, come on. Sorry, this isn't in the script. Sorry. It's Dave Norris's birthday yesterday, okay? Last projection is standing. It was Dave Norris's birthday yesterday. We did do this once before. We sang happy birthday in Dutch, didn't we? We did. Yeah, so would you like to come and join? We're going to sing happy birthday to Dave Norris in Dutch because the reason I wasn't with Dave at his birthday was that I was in Rotterdam. 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 <laughs> Okay, so here we go. Uh, you just point to me when we do the Dave Norris bit. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've gone off piste. Um, anyway, whilst I was there, we recorded um, a, uh, a podcast for the Come Out on Film podcast, which I hope you're all subscribing to, to which I hope you're all subscribing. Uh, <laughs> now available in Dutch. Um, 
And uh, Jack Howard was there, and Jack and I did a podcast together. And something interesting came up. Is Jack in the audience? Yeah. Right, fine, Jack, come. I want you to come and do this, but in English. Ladies and gentlemen, Jack Howard. I can't believe I've got to follow that. Jack, welcome to the... Yeah, I know, it's a hard one. So, um, buddy, uh, what was it that we brought up at the very beginning of the show that had particularly exercised you? I should point out, for those who don't know, Jack is half my age, if that. How old are you? I'm 28. I once asked Jack if he ever saw Queen live. Apparently not. No, I wasn't alive when Freddie Mercury was alive. Mm. So, what happened? <laughs> Did you see the Sex Pistols? No. no. Okay. So, what happened that we brought up on the on the uh, on the pod? There's been a, a big release, a big leak, actually, of uh, alternate Star Wars stuff. What is it? Uh, so Colin Trevorrow was originally supposed to be directing episode nine of Star Wars. Uh, which, which you were not fond of. No, because I'm not a big fan of Colin Trevorrow, and I'm also now not a big fan of what J.J. Abrams has done with Star Wars, and neither is most people, I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, not great. Um, but yeah, now a bunch of stuff has leaked online of what Colin Trevorrow would have done with episode nine. It was originally going to be called Duel of the Fates. Duel of the Fates. Which is a reference to something from the prequels. It's, like, it's a name of a piece of music that John Williams composed. Um, and now there's a bunch of like leaked images of uh, art that potentially would have been for, for this version of episode nine. So the, to get this straight, you really like uh, Last Jedi. Yes. So do I. Yeah. I think it was great. There's a whole I bunch of- I don't care what you think. <laughs> no, we all agree like, Last Jedi is great, yes? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, correct, exactly. We're in a safe space. Yeah, fine, we're in a safe <laughs> Hello, my name's Mark and I like Last Jedi. <laughs> and there was this really weird thing, which was The Last Jedi did a bunch of really interesting, exciting things with the Star Wars mythology, mm -hmm. like specifically, you know, Rafe Nowhere, yeah, which, which is, was a key thing from Nowhere, and yeah. then... The and now I feel film, like I've been slapped in the face a little bit. But no, she is from somewhere after all. Yeah. But apparently, as far as we can tell from some of this artwork... This was going to follow The Last Jedi storyline a little bit closer, apparently. Um, it, it just seems... And there's a, there's a leaked script as well, which is not available to everybody. Like, it isn't just leaked online where you can get it. But uh, people have done, like, a description of what was going to happen. And some people have been like, it's not perfect, obviously, but I think some of the themes and some of the storylines that are in it seemed a little bit closer to what we all liked about episode eight. What were the key things in use? Because there were some things in the artwork that you said, imagine if we'd seen this scene with like with Leia and... Uh... Yeah, so there's, there's like a reference of, uh, of Leia um, leaving a message to BB-8, which I think, I think the, the, the latest draft of this version was done days before Carrie Fisher, Carrie Fisher uh, passed away. Yeah. Um, but there was also a moment, I don't know if there's a screenshot of it here, but, uh, oh yeah, there it is. But there's, there's also a moment where Hux so apparently one of Hux in, in uh, Rise of Skywalker gets completely uh, sidelined and replaced basically by, um, uh, what's his name? Uh, Richard E. Grant. Yes, thank you. Uh, so he gets I don't completely... think that's his character name. No, no, no. no. <laughs> well, it would be great to have Star Wars in which Richard E. Grant played a character called Richard, Richard E. Grant. E. Grant. <laughs> <laughs> he looks like he's made, doesn't he? To so stand there and go fire that's like Richard E. Grant has, has been perfectly cast but he's completely completely sidelined but apparently his original storyline in it was that he was going to become jealous of force users and he wanted to become a force user himself right. and then when he didn't he was going to commit seppuku at the end with a uh, a lightsaber. lightsaber so like there's like interesting stuff in it even for him and he's just a side character but it looked like they were going to make uh 
Kylo Ren the actual villain, which is sort of where we were left off with in episode eight, rather than doing this whole redemption arc, which is what the fans wanted, so they gave it to them and it didn't work and it was rushed and all the rest of it. Basically, I cared way too much about this and I should stop thinking about it because it's never going to exist, but I'm going to obsess about it now because I know that there's evidence. Well, at least we know in every single version, Finn was going to be yelling Ray. <laughs> Is there a part of you that, and I mean, I, you know, I respect your opinion greatly, but you, is there a part of you, that's not a, that's not a setup for, I'm not going to be rude to you now, is there a part of you that thinks, I am now worrying about a Star Wars film that does not exist, I need to get out more? I thought you said you weren't going to be rude. No, no, I don't, because, because the thing is, I've started to think that myself, and I don't even like Star Wars particularly. Well, you and I have the same experience that we only got Star Wars, really, when we saw The Force, Force Awakens. Awakens. That was when we went, oh, I see why people yeah, are enjoying this. Absolutely. And so now I think that I've... I feel a little bit embarrassed that I cared so much because I feel like the Rise of Skywalker slapped me and many of us in the face. So now that I see that there's a potential, and it's been confirmed on Twitter by Colin Trevorrow that it's all real, that there could have been this complete alternate other version of what we got, I just find it fascinating. And so, yeah, I'm going to obsess about it, but... But doesn't that do something interesting to the idea of canonical Star Wars? Yeah. Because when Last Jedi came out, all these fans were saying, oh, we demand that Disney remove Last Jedi from the canon. You go, but the canon, it, or it's just happens, that happens to be the one they made. It's what, that happens to be the one they chose. They could have made the other one. Yeah. So yeah. that idea of canonical Star Wars, it's nonsense, right? Uh, completely, yeah. And we all know now that it's just to sell toys and tickets to theme parks. But yet I'm still obsessing about it. <laughs> I know all this, but it doesn't help. <laughs> we, we've done a podcast, which is our all the Star Wars movies in the order that we that we, we thought. ranked them. Yeah, and what was really remarkable was I don't want to blow it in advance because I'd like you to download the podcast, but. What was remarkable was we were actually pretty close, and we come from very different ways of looking at this, but actually they did add up pretty closely, didn't they? Yeah, yeah, we did all right, but we sort of... And, and also, we're both level-headed people. Really? <laughs> Got an email? Um, we're, <laughs> we're both quite level-headed people. <laughs> so, like, when we disagree on something... We're not going to bite each other's head off and say, but that's not how the force works. You can't do that. You can't do this because we're not basement dwellers. Yes. <laughs> and uh, do you... Do you <laughs> that's a lovely phrase. <laughs> do you think that there are a large number of basement dwellers in the Star Wars... Um... What are you going to say in the audience? <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the audience is hand-picked. Yes, lovely, yeah. I mean, but there is a weird side... <laughs> There you go. <laughs> this is great. Yeah, this was this was emailed over from Alex Cox. Just now? No, actually yesterday as it happened. But what you can't see from the back is at the bottom it says, buy the toys, buy the clothes, buy the food, buy the toys, buy the clothes, buy the food. Consume the merchandise. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so, but there is... There is a strange thing about... I mean, it, like, I don't know whether you know this, but a few years ago, it was actually ruled in British law that Jediism is not a religion. The fact that there, somebody actually had to sit in a court and go... That grown-ups no. had to discuss it. Grown-ups had to go, it's not real, <laughs> and you can't have charitable status because it's in space and not real. <laughs> then again, Trump just you know, gave his Space Force the Star Trek badge, so what the, you know, what the hell do I know? We're living in a really bent reality. It's really strange. We really are. Do you, I'm gonna, last thing, I'm going to let you yeah. go. Do you wish that this version had been made rather than the other version? <sighs> I mean, I'm going to say yes, because 
anything that, but the one that we got, I think I would have liked more. I think over time, I've hated it more and more. When we first spoke, it was I'd just been to the premiere, yeah. which was an odd experience because usually everyone comes out buzzing and we all came out, went to have a burger and all just like mourned and just immediately started making fun of it because there's so much stuff to make fun of. Um, so yeah, look, I wish that we'd got an alternate version. I wish that they'd... I think if we got the exact version that was given to us, but she was still Ray from nowhere, I still would have... I think I wouldn't have liked it, but I would have hated it less. Does that, that make sense? That's going on the poster. I hated it less, yes. Jack Howard. <laughs> um, the whole of the podcast that we did uh, in Rotterdam is, uh, is going up. Stop I'm trying. I'm trying because nobody... Here's the worst thing. You no try, one's asking you, you to try. You try and speak Dutch in Holland and everyone speaks English to you. So what's your, what's your point? Because it's like a way of them going, don't even English. try, you are so far <laughs> off what it's meant to sound like. They asked, they said, what's your favourite Dutch movie? I said, oh, Sporloos. They went, oh, you mean Sporlos? I went, no, that's what I said, isn't it? <laughs> right, George Slauser. They went, ha ha, George Slauser. It's like I couldn't say anything right. But anyway, um, the podcast goes, how, how is it? I was, I was Slauser. There we go. So they were just laughing at me on principle. Okay. Right. I think if she was amongst peers, she would also be joining in in the laughter. I think so, exactly. Um, so the whole of that podcast goes up tomorrow. It's, it's an hour of fab entertainment, including you and I arguing about... Fab entertainment. That's what I do. Uh, arguing about great music movements. Uh, music yeah, we, we do um, our top three favourite uses of music in scenes. So not four. like... Yeah, you cheat. So we don't do uh, our favourite soundtracks, but more like what scenes would not be the same if they were different music? And it's a really interesting conversation. And already now I'm assuming most of you are building a list in your head. So um, tune in. It's a podcast, you don't tune in. Jack Howard. Thank you. Right, we have a third guest to bring on, but before I do that, I'm going to do, uh, this is the question thing that we would usually do at the beginning of the show. This is now, isn't it, Nick? I'm, I know I haven't got a script in my, but it's in my head. If anybody has anything they want to ask within the round bounds of reason, obviously, we've stopped doing email questions, we're just doing send them in. So stick your hand up if you do. Yes. I'm just going to run a microphone down to you so when it comes to the podcast, people can hear. Hi, Happy Hello. New Year, by the way. Happy New Year. Thank you very much. Happy New Year to you too. <laughs> uh, so, d very simple, but what are you looking forward to that's coming out this year? I, I, have, I, I say this and I, nobody believes me. I'm genuinely looking forward to the thing I don't know anything about. The thing that I'm, ex that I'm really excited about is the film that I don't know anything about. I mean... Jack and I did a podcast about all, looking ahead to all the big, you know, tentpole films that are coming up and the superhero movies and the independent releases and things like, you know, because we're in awards season, things like, you know, Celine Simo's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, all that stuff. But the thing I'm really excited about is the thing I don't know anything about because whenever I get to the end of the year, I didn't know anything about Bates before it opened and it was wonderful. And I didn't know anything about Souvenir before it opened and it was wonderful. So it's genuinely the thing that's going to get screened as the last film on a Tuesday that I don't know anything other than the title of the film and the name of the venue. That's the thing that makes this job brilliant, is the films that you don't know about, because you didn't track them on the internet and watch all the different versions of them, and then download the script of the version that didn't get made. <laughs> uh, yes, let's take another one. Let's go there. Hi, um, I saw you gave a perfect score to David Copperfield. Um, could you expand on that? I, I can expand on that. In fact, why listen to me? Ladies and gentlemen, Amanda Iannucci. <laughs> Thank you. 
That's like, um, is it Annie Hall? Is it Annie Hall? Yes, Marshall McLuhan. Marshall McLuhan, I have him here now. <laughs> you couldn't write this stuff, no, could you? I did it once. I did it at the premiere of Death of Stalin because I'd been trying to make my children, who are now not children anymore, watch uh, Time Bandits. And almost like on principle, they've been saying, no, you're an idiot. No. And at the premiere of The Death of Stalin, I was saying, you must watch Time Bandits. Here's the director, because Terry Gilliam was, was out there. And they just kind of like... <laughs> and did they then like it? No, they haven't. They still, as a matter of course, they still refuse, refuse to watch it. Yeah. I have to, my, my only comparable story to that is um, when my children were much younger, I was quite good friends with William Peter Blatty, who wrote The Exorcist. Oh, yes. And no, this is a quick story. Mm-hmm. And we, had got, we, went, we went out for dinner in Georgetown uh, uh, with William Peter Blatty and his wife, who very kindly, knowing that we had two young kids, had brought along uh, toys for each of the kids to play with whilst we were having dinner. And they gave my son a fire truck and they came my daughter a Barbie doll and she was like five so she obviously hadn't seen The Exorcist and she sat between me and Bill Blatty and she had the Barbie doll and the thing and just completely unknowingly she sat and she turned the head <laughs> and had no idea why the table went quiet to have a string at the back you pull it you might have cocked in hell you know it's So, Amanda, I... Oh, we're actually doing an interview. I thought it was just a plan for that question. (laughs) I absolutely loved uh, David Copperfield. I thought it was terrific. We've got a couple of clips to show from it. But before I show the first one, I just want to say the the thing I loved about it most was this. Firstly, I laughed all the way through both times, although there are real moments of sadness and melancholia. But at this particular time in our history, it seemed to be a film designed to celebrate... The better us. So- us. Yes, exactly. us. Yes. Do you want to say something? Well, about yes. That? No, I kind of thought it's sort of very much set in 1840, and we we tried to get the period detail actually as accurate as we could be, and yet the way we wanted to film it and cast it and and speak it really, I said to everyone, crew and cast at the start, let's pretend no one's ever made a costume drama before, and therefore there are no rules, there's no conventions, there's no way you ought to do it, and let's just make the story we want to make. And, and I particularly, the film itself, the book, uh, the reason I wanted to make the film, because the book is so modern and so full of fantastic sort of issues like, you know, status anxiety and uh, will I be found out and am I doing all right and what do people make of me, all that sort of thing. But, but I, it was also about community and friendship. And I wanted to make a film that celebrated that and that celebrate. There is, there's a sort of tendency, I think, especially over the last three years, I think there's a default position is to think of Britain as being inward and isolationist and um, uh, rather down on ourselves. And I don't think that's the case. I think we're, we are a, a, a generous, kind, outgoing and very creative country that also uh, uh, is happy to laugh about itself and has an amazing sense of humour and is very charitable and, and warm. And, and that's what I wanted to celebrate. I'm going to show two clips. The first clip we're going to show is with the young David Copperfield, mm-hmm. brilliantly played by a young actor. Yeah, Gerard. Yes, so ha- where did you find yes. him? He, he turned up instead of his brother. His brother couldn't make the audition. No! And so... Are you serious? Yeah. And so Gerard turned up with his, with his mum. And, uh, and we saw lots of, lots of kids. And I, I really needed... I, the, the test is... I, I don't know if you, it's, this is the bit in the 
clip but the test is meeting McCorber is the show. Oh, I was meeting McCorber. Okay. Ah, I've got a story about that which I can tell you about afterwards. Um uh, uh, at one point um, David's mother remarries um, Mr. Murdstone and insists that she's called Mrs. Murdstone and, and and young David has this line where he just shouts at him, it's Clara Copperfield, sir. And I just wanted everyone who made it through to the last, I just wanted them to come up to me and just shout in my face, it's Clara Copperfield, sir, and make me feel really quite frightened. <laughs> and Gerard did it, and, uh, that, that's, and he got the part. And it's a complete kind of gamble, really, because you know, he hadn't done any other acting parts other than at school. And, but in the film, he, he, has, to, he has to mimic the other characters he's with, because David sort of almost Zelig-like tries to turn into the characters, the people he meets. Um, he has to do different accents, and, and he has to improvise as well, actually. And I, have, I remember with my cans on, listening in between takes, I could hear Jerez just say to a much older actor, should we do a slightly loose one now? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and, um, and I thought he was very together, very cool, but actually the first day we were rehearsing the Mr. Micawber scenes in walks Peter Capaldi, at which point Jerez sees Doctor Who. <laughs> and just like, absolutely, and I'd completely forgotten. I'd forgotten he was Doctor Who. And he was like, like just rooted to his chair, shaking. Um, but, but bless, he got over it. And yeah, no, he's, he's extraordinary. Okay, well, let's yeah. see the scene in the film in which those two characters Characters do meet for the first yeah. time. Here we go. Are you Master Copperfield? I am indeed. How do you do, Master Copperfield? Very good. Master Copperfield, it would be of material assistance to me if you would join those gentlemen, echo their slanderous cries, and then enunciate the following. Here, round the back is flitting. Here, round the back. Here. Here. Here, as in the uh, oral organ. Here. Here, round the back. Mm-hmm. He's splitting. Flitting. Flitting. Precisely, splitting. Well, no time like the present. Open up! Come on! Pay up! The money, please! Go back! E! Round the back! He's. What? Flitting. Flitting, is he? Go back! There he is! Oh! Back tomorrow, McCulver! Oh, oh, oh. You haven't got away with it. Oh. Oh. A bravura performance, Master Copperfield. Welcome. Welcome to our humble home. <clears throat> I must have seen that scene now eight or nine times, but I still laugh every time he does the flitting thing. Flitting, yes. And, yeah. You know, I was saying earlier on when we were talking to Chris Scott Thomas, is it, the, is, it, is it funny on set when you're doing comedy? Yes, no, absolutely. I think, um, I think there has to be, like, a good mood on set for comedy to happen, really. If it's tense and... Now, obviously, if it's, it's also hard work, and if you're doing something like that and it's like you've done it five times, six times, you're now getting down to the fine detail of, you know, the timing and so on. That, that's hard, but I think, I think it's always about trying to keep your spirits up and, and keep things jolly... Um, because otherwise, uh, I don't see how you can sort of convey that kind of infection. I mean, Peter Capaldi in particular is like, there's a scene later when Mr. McCall, he's the worst concertina player in the world. And Peter 
A, he did the Les Dawson approach. He, he A, learned the concertina, and then B, learned how to play it badly so that he could play the concertina badly. And Dev and Nye, who played Steerforth, were just in stitches every take because they couldn't keep a straight face. It was so appallingly bad. There's a lovely bit when he's doing it the first time and he's playing it and it's awful and his wife says, angels at his fingertips. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yes. Which is yeah. really lovely. Yeah. Um, now, the casting is, I think, superb. You've done this kind of colorblind approach to casting, which is get the right people for the right roles, yeah. not worry about anything else. And at the center of all of that, you have this brilliant, a genuinely brilliant performance by Dev Patel, who reminded me, and I say this as the highest compliment, of Chaplin. Yes. Do you want to say something about Dev? And Well, what? I mean, I, when we knew we were going to make the film, the only person I could think of was Dev. I really, I just, you know, it's seeing Dev, obviously we've seen him in Skins being sort of gawky and awkward and teenage and all that, but in line be very strong and still and charismatic and David needs to actually do that journey in two hours in the in the film. So I could only think of him, really, and I'm so glad he said yes, because there was no plan B. There was, you know, Robert De Niro, maybe, de-aged, and um, <laughs> you know, a, cat, a cat version of some, just kind of... Um, just <laughs> there's a dog in it. Maybe that's played by Judy Dench's hand, just... <laughs> Um, I would pay good money to David Catterfield. That would would, would be just fabulous. Um, So, uh, and and we met up, and he had, he he didn't know the book. I said, you don't have to read the book. This film is not for people. It's not. There's no entrance exam for this film. I don't care if no one's heard of Dickens or of David Copperfield. It's. But I think you're David. You are David. I can't think of anyone else. And he said yes. And 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 yes, as you say, there was this magical moment about a week before we started filming when we did camera tests. And it's just we got everyone and our fantastic cast in their costume, makeup, got the lighting, and there's no sound, so it's all silent. And Dev came out from behind the screen as David Copperfield in his sort of garb, but played with his cane and his hat. And I genuinely did think it's Charlie Chaplin. I really did. And at that point, I thought, we've got the film. This is going to be amazing. Because he does this extraordinary, subtle, I think, range of slapstick, drama, comedy, pathos, warmth. That's what Dev has, is that you know, you, you're willing him on all the time. And um, and he's in practically every scene, apart from ten minutes with, with James, young David. He's he's in every scene for like two hours. When I show the scene when he meets uh, Dora Spenlow, there's an interesting thing yes. about the casting of the character okay. of Dora Spenlow. Yes. Do you want to just? Well, Moffat Clark plays Dora, but also plays David's mother Clara at the beginning of the film. And uh, can so I confess something? I didn't realise that until the second time I saw the film. No, and it's it's just there as a, a, a people used to say Easter egg. But it's, what is it now, a meme or a gif? I don't know. I'm 57. I, I have know. no idea what the last three things you said <laughs> were. So that, that, that child who was on here talking about Star Wars earlier, he'll... he'll Jack! He'll, he'll tell you. Um, <laughs> uh, no, it's just there. It's, it's there. I just thought, let's do it. But if nobody notices, that's absolutely fine. Okay. And uh, so he does, she does a, a kind of English Clara and a Welsh Dora. Okay. This is such a great scene. You were staring slightly. Is there something wrong with me? No, goodness me, no. I, I apologise for my rudeness. Oh. He's apologising, Jeff. Shall we forgive him? He says we shall. <laughs> Thank you, Chip. Think nothing of it, sir. He speaks very well. It was actually me. 
<laughs> I like to pretend he speaks. Some people think it idiotic. Oh, no. I, I, I do it myself all the time. Uh, don't I, Mr... Apple tree. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> um, I'm David Copperfield. Are you still being the tree? No. I'm Dora. Spenlow. Spenlow? Uh, Dora, Dora Spenlow? Yes. I, I don't know why I said it like that. Dora... Spenlow, I don't usually stop in the middle. Trotwood! Mr. Spenlow! Sorry. Yes. Bye-bye. Sorry? What, what was that? Just Jeff. Bye-bye. <laughs> tree. Uh, apple tree. <laughs> I know. Sorry? I know. <laughs> I know. Mm. Quite a lot of that is in the book. That's why it appealed to me. There are all these... I mean, she does ridiculously think that she can make her dog speak and people will find it entertaining. Yeah. You know. But there's also... There is something really generous about the film because there's a theme going on all the way through which is about creation, about, you know, like the author writing his own story. We begin with Copperfield on stage, then walking into the backdrop and going out into the countryside. Mm. And, of course there's a particularly tragic ending to some of the character arcs in the book, but you did a beautiful thing of actually having a character ask themselves to be written out, yes. which I thought was a really, a really touching way of changing something from, from, from a tragedy into something more of a kind of creative well, it was process. Take, it was, without doing any spoilers, it was allowing yeah. that character to take charge of their own fate at a time where in the book I felt it was treated sort of it was a problem it was a narrative problem that dickens way of just resolving it was for that character to Don't. more or less just drop dead <laughs> for, for no real reason you know um uh, so so there was elements of that and and uh, and we've had to you know it's an 800 page book uh it's a two-hour film you inevitably you're having to kind of compress but but also i wanted to retain the spirit of the book well, at the same same time, making the story work as as a film, have a beginning and a middle and an end, and uh, so you do have to make modifications like that. And sometimes they throw up things that you think, oh, actually, that might be better. Actually, <laughs> let's try that then. I mean, I I love that because I there's something very modern about the novel anyway, and the film sort of puts that modernity to the fore. You do feel that all the characters are living in the present yes. or in their present. In their present, that's the key. You know, maybe 1840. But for them, that's the present day. They're in their modern day. And London should feel bright and exciting. It's the Industrial Revolution. It's like, it's a big kind of trading, you know. And, and, and you know, when they pick up a book, it shouldn't be full of cobwebs and so on. Because they bought the book last week, you know. It's, it, they didn't buy it 150 years ago. And it's trying to get away from that, that notion of Dickens being all about mud and fog and, and oldness and, and actually trying to home in more on I think the freshness of it really I want to play a clip from Death of Stalin which is very different because the, <laughs> very thing, different about, film. the thing about Death of Stalin is you know this has real humour and warmth in it Death of Stalin is really funny but about one of the, about something which is profoundly not funny and I was really impressed by the fact that in Death of Stalin that balance between horror and humour is perfectly balanced. And this scene I particularly love, not least because it features hello to Jason Isaac. So here we go. <laughs> Sad day, soldier. Yes, sir. Sad day. I'll turn off, you handsome devil. <laughs> Stick in a frock, I'll fucking ride you all myself. <laughs> I won't take that as a compliment. Yeah, don't. Right, 
What's a war hero got to do? Get some lubrication around here. Ah, oh, Generalissimo. There he is, eh? Yeah. A great man. Mm. Seen a lot of death, but that, that is a loss. Tell me something. Mm. Why is the army been replaced by the NKVD all over Moscow? I mean, I'm smiling, but I am very fucking furious. <laughs> so when, when we were researching Death of Stalin, you know, we went to Russia and, and spoke to people whose parents, grandparents, some of whom themselves had grew up under that, and they said we had to tell jokes. I mean, it was so absurd what was going on. People genuinely packed suitcases full of clothes so that if they were pulled out in the middle of the night they could grab a suitcase that they actually humor was one they circulated these joke books jokes about stalin that if you were heard saying them or reading them you could be shot and yet they still felt the need to make jokes because it was like saying stalin may lock me up may take away my family but if i can make a joke about him yeah. he hasn't shut me down you know that's i've still got that and 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 i don't think comedy actually um, belittles a subject if, if you're you know it depends how you do it yeah. I went back before making it I went back to fantastic film The Great Dictator Charlie Chaplin mm. which came out in 1941 satire about Hitler we, and there are jokes about there is there are references to gas yeah. and and speeches great kind of comic speeches about the Jews and it's extraordinary tightrope he walks between that kind of taking it very seriously and yet setting it up at the same time I asked you to choose a guilty pleasure, and yeah. uh, earlier on, uh, Chris, Chris Thomas chose Alien. Yes. And you chose something which actually, in a weird way, is a kind of lovely kind of uh, <laughs> a bookend with that. What did you go for? I went for Independence Day. <laughs> I'm just going to run straight into the clip, because I think, in a way, nothing says guilty pleasure better than a clip from Independence Day. Here we go. It's great. It's so good because what I like about it is, I mean, it's ridiculous, but they don't say that in the film. No. They just absolutely go for it. And actually, it, it's, there's some really funny bits, but intentionally funny. Yeah. I mean, my favourite bit is when Will Smith and Jeff Goldblum, I think they're in the Mothercraft or something, and, and, or are they about to take off? And, and Will Smith is meant to pilot this thing, and he presses something, and it bangs, and he goes, oops. <laughs> And, and Jeff Goldblum goes, you, you know how to fly this, do you? you know, Oops. Ugh. You know, he just looks absolutely ashen because he thinks he's going to die. And I just love all that. I, I love the... And I, it's a fantastic story. And I, I think it's, it's just one of these... Um, yes, it's escapist, but I, I like the craft. And, I, and it's also famous for, of course, one of those early films where they blew up the White, White House, House. yeah. Which is very therapeutic. This is... Um, <laughs> it's great. 
just play that in a loop now, really. Just, you know. <laughs> I remember when I f- first saw it, I had been, I, w- I was ill for a while. I had back surgery and I was off work for like three months. And it was the first film I saw when I came back to film criticism and I couldn't sit down and it's yeah. quite long yeah. and I, I stood yeah. at the back of the Empire Leicester Square I think it yeah. was and I never once thought I'm standing for over no. two hours because it's it was just totally hit absorbing. after hit yeah. in terms of the scene and, and, and a sort of a kind of one of those serendipities when everything was right everything just came together because they did a, they did a, 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 a sequel about 20 years later that yeah. was rubbish pants I think people is that the expression now <laughs> I don't know <laughs> Jodpers uh, and um, <laughs> and what's his name Emrich uh, yeah, yeah yeah loads of shit since then I mean really 2012 yeah yeah terrible dreadful stuff it's like the fo- it was like they didn't think about it too much they just got on with it and because it was a success they then started thinking about it and that's yeah. that's when the uh, it also features the great scene in which Bill Pullman does the American president speech about this, this is, is our, our Independence Day yes and you're going yes. yes. Yeah. And you know, I don't think any of those things. But yeah, but, you know. and now kind of like stolen by uh, by Boris Johnson for like <laughs> January the thirty first will be our Independence Day. We, you know, yes. So yeah, I, I, I hadn't actually other, even thought other, of that, but now that's spoiled the film. Yes, for I know. <laughs> I think of a few other buildings that would be yeah. lovely to see blown up, but um, <laughs> uh, but you can't say that these days. <laughs> It's political correctness political gone correct. mad. It's both political correctness and health and safety <laughs> gone absolutely mad. Um, <laughs> yeah. But look, Amanda, I, 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 I'm not just saying this because I had, as you know, I had actually filed the review of that thing before I knew you were coming on the show. Hmm. I loved David Copperfield. I think it's just wonderful, not just because it's a tonic, but I think it's a really smart and sensitive adaptation of that oh, book. And, uh, and I think you've done a brilliant job. In that. And I hope everybody goes to see it. It is playing fairly wide range. Very cinemas. widely. Just, we just had our opening weekend. And it's gone well. Yeah, really well. Yeah. And yeah. I saw loads of tweets from audience members coming out of you. Absolutely loved it. Yeah. Yeah, and there are kind of interesting reactions. People going, saying, coming out, sort of skipping. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People, people tweeting to me saying, I've never used this word before, but I'm really emotional, you know, <laughs> in a good way. I mean, people do come out slightly. And the other thing we're finding is families going to see it and then um, going home sort of discussing it because every sort of generation takes a different thing out of it. So, uh, and if it happens to make one or two people want to go back to the book or, or, or look at that period, then fantastic. I'm going to leave you with one thing very quickly. Mm. This is six seconds that you changed my life. Okay? We got this? Shh. God, Kermode, your hands are massive. <laughs> and, and they're not. And they are. They're not. And ladies and gentlemen, his hands are here tonight. <laughs> Just bring them on. There's a <laughs> I've lived with that ever since. A, a truck is backing in with the hands. <laughs> They're being winched in now. I don't know if you... Just for the people at home who are just hearing this, there are two of them. <laughs> They're immense. One is in this theatre, the other is in theatre number two. Uh, <laughs> I don't. They're, well, they're all right. I mean, they're bigger than mine. Normal sized hands. Oh, look at that, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Amanda Yanucci. <laughs> we.
We have to get out in about three minutes' time, so I'm going to finish with this as a musical tribute to the great uh, Terry Jones, not only in it, but also co-wrote it. You've probably all seen it before, but brilliantly enough, it comes very well off the back of a Dickens adaptation. This is Every Sperm is Sacred. Every Sperm is Sacred Every Sperm is Great If the Sperm is Wasted Well, there we are. That was the January MK3D live from the BFI South Bank. If you like the sound of that show and you want tickets to come along to the live show, just go to the BFI website. Be warned, they do sell out rather quickly. Thanks so much for downloading. If you've enjoyed it, remember to subscribe. Tell your friends. Keep watching the skies. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.